You're listening to the Names Not Numbers podcast, the annual ideas festival produced by Editorial Intelligence. What matters in genomics? A special Welcome Trust session. I'm Mark Henderson. I'm uh, Head of Communications at the Wellcome Trust. Uh, For those of you who don't know us, we're uh, the largest charity in the UK, the the third largest charitable foundation in the the world, with uh, an endowment of £16.5 billion at the moment, which we use to fund uh, mostly medical research, but also uh, the uh, pursuit of... um, uh, other things that promote uh, uh, sort of extraordinary advances in health, that includes medical humanities and also public engagement uh, with, with science. We spend £750 million a year, and one of our big strategic challenges is genomics. It's understanding what the human genome is, uh, what impact it has on health, and what impact that has on medicine and society. Uh, And we're here to uh, discuss that uh, this afternoon. Um, We're just over a decade out from the sequencing of the human genome, uh, to which uh, the trust uh, contributed about a third of the cost. Uh, That cost at the time uh, was about $3 billion to do just one human genome. Uh, The cost of reading a human genome now is down to about $1,000 and falling. Uh, We are also seeing the benefits of that incredible science starting uh, to make inroads into medicine, as we will hear and discuss. And that, of course, raises uh, very many uh, fascinating questions for society. Uh, We heard some of those from Margaret Atwood uh, earlier, but I think we'll be exploring those in in more detail uh, now. Um, we have a terrific panel here to uh, talk us through this, and uh, uh, it's a, a, an opportune time to be doing this as well, because the government is just embarking on a really ambitious project to sequence 100,000 NHS patients' entire genomes and use that information in their care. Uh, we're one of the first places in the world to do that. Um, on my far right is uh, Professor Sir Mike Stratton, who's a director of the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute, uh, a very uh, eminent uh, cancer uh, geneticist uh, who now leads the uh, institute which sequenced a third of the genome and has been doing great things to understand it since. Uh, Next, we have uh, Baroness uh, Helena Kennedy, who needs no introduction to you. Uh, But uh, the one word of introduction you may not know about her is that she was, uh, for some time, the chairman of the government's Human Genetics Commission, now sadly uh, defunct. We'll hear uh, more about uh, that, I'm sure, in due course. And then finally, we have Dr. Anna Middleton, who is a geneticist by background and a psychologist, but who now studies the... uh, social impact, the impact of genomics on people's lives and some of the ethical issues. So we'll be discussing this for a while and then throwing it open to you. Um, I'd like to start, Mike. Uh, Could you start by just talking us through very briefly what a genome actually is? Okay, thank you, Mark. Um, DNA is a language, it's a code. It's there to impart information, it's to impart heritable information from across generations. And like all languages and codes, it has to have an alphabet, and the language of DNA has four letters in its code. 
And the way that you read DNA is you just have the letters ordered in various ways, and that's how the information is embedded within it, and you read it from left to right, from beginning to end, much as you would read a book. So the genome is all the DNA of one species. An organism such as Salmonella, which causes uh, food poisoning, has a genome of about four million letters of code, <coughs> which read from one end to the other. The human genome has about 3,000 million letters of code, which is about the equivalent of 10,000 middle-sized paperbacks. Um, and uh, talk us through where we are now in the, in, in, in the, 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 the kind of journey of genomics. You've often talked to me about three ages of, of, yeah. of genomics. So genomics really started properly in about 1990 with the ambition to sequence genomes, the genomes of humans and many other organisms. And that came about because of changes in technology that allowed us to do that. So that first decade from 1990 to about year 2000 was in pro pro providing the, what we call the reference sequences of species. So that is one sequence for the human, the reference genome for the human, one sequence for Salmonella, the reference sequence for Salmonella, and so on through the species. The second decade, more or less, starting in year 2000, when the genome was revealed and uh, presented to the world, was to explore differences between individual genomes. Each of us sitting here in this audience, we have our own copy of those 3,000 million letters of code. We have our own human genome. If you look to someone else in the audience of the same sex, that person has a human genome which is 99.9% identical to yours. In other words, it's only one in a thousand letters of code that is different between you and that person. And in that one in a thousand differences, that's what influences the way that we look, the way that we behave, and the diseases that we're predisposed to. So the last decade, from 2000 to 2010, has been, provided us with an explosion of information about the differences between your genome and the genome of the person sitting next to you, differences between a cancer genome and the normal genome of the individual from which that cancer developed. So with, armed with that information, that huge tide of information, again brought by changes in DNA sequencing technology, new technology, it emerged over the last decade, we're now armed, essentially, to start implementing genomes in real time across populations to patients. And that is the, that's the mission for the coming decade. And that's, that's kind of the, 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 one of the exciting things is we're starting to enter that now. And um, uh, before we move on to, to the other two, it would just be great if you could talk us through some of the areas in which... Uh, this, this, this medical application of genomics is no longer something of the future, but something of, of right now. I mean, we, took, we discussed four earlier, so... Okay, so I'll give you two, two of those areas. One is in cancer, and one is with infectious diseases. So in cancer, we've known for you know, several decades, actually, that all cancers are diseases of DNA. Some of the changes in the DNA sequence, some of these variants, mutations, differences, abnormalities, whatever you want to call them, are inherited from parent to offspring, and they confer different risks, different predispositions to develop cancer. But actually, 
all cancers are due to mutations, to changes in DNA that are occurring through an individual's lifetime. Because every cell in the body, every time it divides, it has to copy its, de copy its, de its genome. From one cell to two cells, you need to then have a genome for each of those two cells. The genome has to be copied. So all 3,000 million letters of code have to be copied, and mistakes do get made. Mis mutations occur in every cell of our body throughout life. Actually, we shouldn't uh, downplay the DNA replication machinery. Every time a cell divides, one mistake, one letter of code is got wrong, which is pretty amazing in 3,000 million that need to be copied. But as those cells acquire mutations throughout a lifetime, occasionally one cell acquires a number of mutations in key genes that we call cancer genes, and those mutations in those genes in that single cell cause that cell to behave abnormally. It starts dividing when it shouldn't divide, it starts to infiltrate surrounding tissues, it starts to float off in the bloodstream and deposit elsewhere in the body. In other words, that single cell has started to behave as a cancer because it has acquired these mutations in these key genes. So one of the things over the last decade has been an aim to sequence large numbers of cancer genomes to find these mutations that are occurring throughout the lives of individuals in order to identify those key genes, those cancer genes, which when mutated convert a normal cell into a cancer cell. And currently, it's between 10 and 20,000 cancer genomes have been sequenced. Huge amounts of data have been acquired. They're in the process of analysis. And within a couple of years, we will have more or less the complete list of genes which, when they're mutated in the right cell type in the body, can convert a cell from a normal cell into a cancer cell. So that's a very substantial achievement, which is leading to profound understanding of how cancers develop. And the next step beyond. Because some of these mutated genes recommend themselves as targets for the development of new therapeutics. For example, it's not a big step to take that if a gene is mutated, it's switched on, and it's stuck in the on position because of its mutation, it's continuously telling the cell to keep on dividing. If you could find a drug to switch it off, then the fantasy, as it was 10, 15 years ago, would be that the cell would stop dividing and the cancer would revert to normal. Based on that very simple idea, a number of genes have been found which have mutated and which have been targets for such therapeutic development. The one that we found at the Sanger Institute was a gene called BRAF, which is mutated in about 70% of a skin cancer called, called malignant melanoma. And BRAF caused excitement at that time because when malignant melanoma spreads, it is a remorseless disease. It cannot be touched by chemotherapy. It cannot be touched by radiotherapy. It is essentially a death sentence. What was exciting about BRAF is that it was exactly the sort of molecule, exactly the sort of gene that one might have some optimism could be targeted by new drugs. So starting in 2002, there was a wave of drug discovery in academia and in the pharmaceuticals to find inhibitors of BRAF. And indeed, those were found, they were converted into medicines, they were then subjected to clinical trials, and indeed they worked. That 
absolutely simple idea that you could find an inhibitor of this mutator gene or the protein that it makes that would switch it back off and convert the cancer cell back to a normal cell. That essentially has worked, and it's worked multiple times now with other, with other genes. So that's the good part of it. That's the good news. The caution is that cancers are devious beasts. They continue growing. They can acquire resistance to these drugs, and so ultimately they can often come back. But I can't um, emphasize too much just how profound an impact this has had on the world of the development of cancer therapeutics. The notion that we now have all these targets, which based on knowledge, based on understanding, we can develop new therapeutics to, which we can have optimism, will at least be feet in the door against cancer. And I think something to stress within that as well is that actually that story about the BRAF mutation and that leading to the development of a new drug is an incredibly fast story as well. Uh, the BRAF mutation was, was discovered, I think, published in 2003, and there was a drug on the market in 2011. I mean, on, in, in the scale of drug development, that's, that's an incredibly short uh, timescale. Um, Anna, I, I, another area that we often talk about where genomics is kind of making an inroad into medicine now is, is rare disease, isn't it? Where yeah. we have um, conditions that maybe are individually rare but collectively quite common. I think the statistics suggest that as, as many as one in 20 people may have a rare disease. Um, tell us about the project you're involved with that, that, yeah. that tackles that. So I'm involved with a, a really beautiful partnership between the Sanger Institute that's able to offer the sequencing technology to children with uh, developmental disorders who are currently in the NHS system and the testing that they can get on the NHS is not revealing a diagnosis. It's not sophisticated enough to look very closely at the genes that are causing the condition. So 12,000 kids from the NHS are recruited into a research project at the Sanger Institute uh, and their parents as well, so 36,000 samples. Um, and the idea is that the Sanger will hopefully unpick a diagnosis for these kids. So the really subtle genetic changes that are causing uh, severe intellectual impairment and severe physical impairment. Now, I'm interested in the ethical issues surrounding this because when you have a sequence from a child, from a person, you have all 20,000 genes there to look at. Now, we're interested in the developmental disorder and what's caused that. Can we find a new developmental disorder gene? What, what are the changes in the known developmental disorder genes? And that's the push behind the research. But you also have lots of other information there about those children and those families. So, for example, if we chose to look, we could look at the breast cancer genes, we could look at the Alzheimer genes, we could look at a whole host of genes that are completely, we think, unrelated to developmental disorders. And the ethical um, debate surrounding this is what should we be looking at? What should we be sharing? Should we only be focusing on the clinical question that those parents want to answer for their children? Should we be taking the opportunity to explore all these other things? And so I'm running a research project that's exploring all those ethical dimensions. And before we get into, uh, with, with, with Helena, how those, some of those ethical I think there's another important point around that, the, the type of study you've just been uh, talking about. Well, that in many cases, the, 
the, the identification of the, the, the genetic diagnosis actually doesn't lead to a treatment, mm. but that doesn't mean it's not valuable, yeah. does it? So many of these kids have been, they have such rare disorders, and they've been in the NHS for a long time, and they've been seen by many paediatricians, and they've been to clinical genetics, and everybody is saying to them, this condition is genetic, but we just don't know exactly what the cause is. And these parents are very vulnerable, and they really need a diagnosis. Um, it makes a difference having a name. It makes a difference when you go for statementing to get educational support for your kid. Um, it makes a difference you know, when you can actually um, explain to family members, it wasn't that glass of wine I had in pregnancy. There is actually a, a genetic cause for this, this child's condition. Um, and what we've found is that uh, we have actually already been giving quite a few results already, and the feedback has been incredible. I mean, really, really positive. These families know that at the moment, the genetic diagnosis is not going to lead to a therapy at the moment, but it may do at some point in the future. But just having a name and a cause is just very beneficial. Now, Helena, you were, you were chair for several years of the Human Genetics Commission, which um, sadly was pulled apart in the, the bonfire of, uh, of the Quangos. Um, I, I mean, how important is it that, 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 that a lot of the issues, the kind of things that Anna uh, was just discussing are considered sort of more broadly by society. Well, it was it was really interesting. What happened was that um, it was decided that there had been committees that had existed around uh, sort of uh, developments in biological sciences. Um, but uh, and this, of course, you've got to remember is separate from the um, the embryology HFA, authority. Yes, the, the, every, everyone always used to confuse the two. The the, the human fertilisation and embryology authority HFEA, which um, Lisa Jardine used to chair, that. Um, was a different thing. That was all to yeah. do with um, fertility and so on. Uh, they, they set up the commission, the Human uh, Genetics Commission, um, really because, you know, coming down the pike was the decoding of the, of the genome, and they realised that it would raise lots of, uh, lots of issues, ethical issues, moral issues, you know, legal issues. And, uh, and so a commission was created, and I chaired that for actually for eight years. And then um, uh, um, Sir John Sulston, the great, uh, uh, you know, Nobel Prize winning uh, geneticist, uh, or, you know, the scientist who had been involved in the decoding, he then, he'd been my vice chair, and then he became the chair when I, when I stepped down. And it was, I, I loved it. It was a wonderful period of my life because I, for, first of all, I loved working with, with scientists because far from the, the, the headlines in the Daily Mail, um, scientists were not unethical but were hugely ethical and spent a lot of time agonizing over the ethics of, the, of, of what they were doing and so on. But the other thing, that there were a number of thing, lessons that I learned. One was, first of all, that... Um, this kind of, we were all, you know, excited, and there are fantastic things to come out of this. But we have to understand that uh, some of those uh, imagined benefits were not going to be there. One is most disease, as Mike will tell you, is multifactorial. So even if you're, you're you know, you have a genetic predisposition for something, there is, you know, in very few, only in, in, in a few uh, sort of single gene abnormalities like Huntington's Korea, only in a very few diseases will you definitely, you know, uh, acquire the disease. And, uh, and so most of the time it's about lifestyle, it's about environment, it's about other things. And, um, and one of the problems is that now, you know, you can go on the internet and, and you know, sending a sample, um, expect to get through the post, you know, your, your decoded genome for $1,000. And my concern about it um, is that without the kind of genetic counselling and support to help you understand what the meaning of some of this is, you can either overread it to think that you're going 
going to die tomorrow and that you're definitely going to get particular cancers, or you will underread it and think you're terrific and then be very disappointed and feel cheated when you do get the cancer um, because you, you know, your, gene, your, your genome didn't indicate that you were likely to get it, but in fact, other factors led to it. So um, th that was one of the interesting concerns that we had to think about was whether there should be regulation of any kind of that kind of access to that sort of decoding stuff where you could be ripped off and so on. There was another issue which affected us as a, as a commission. A lot of, um, of our work, of course, were with groups who, um, who you know, were particularly representing particular, um, um, uh, you know, groupings of people who had diseases which were of a genetic yeah. kind. And so they interacted with us. And I wanted it to be absolutely open because I thought trust was essential to this. And so we had, for the first time, every minute of our meetings were online and so forth. And people also, we had a, 102 people sat on a, uh, an interactive committee um, uh, commission. Where they, they, they gave us their views and ideas and everything they, they, they felt was happening inside their organizations around fears that people had about you know, the genetics. The, 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 there were a number of things that concerned me. One of the first things that we did was deal with the business of the insurance industry. The insurance industry was sitting like that, waiting to make money out of this stuff. And, um, and I spent a lot of time, the labouring government was very frightened of, of you know, losing the confidence of the insurance world, um, and so they didn't want to be seen to be you know, stopping access to this stuff. Because what happens is, you go for an insurance policy, and your doctors are going to be contacted, how much information is going to be handed over, and if you'd had a genetic test, would you, a bit like the HIV test, would there be an obligation to hand it over, and what would be the implications of that? Would the insurance companies be over-reading your, your DNA, uh, uh, you know, the decoding, and thinking that because you've got a predisposition to some particular thing, that you were def definitely going to get it and therefore not insure you. So we were very concerned about all of this happening too quickly. And so um, the best I could do was that I got a moratorium on, it, on this material being used by the insurance industries. And I fought very hard with, for that. I fought with the uh, insurance world over it, and I managed to persuade the Treasury um, to, to engage with us in creating that moratorium. So that, that was a very useful uh, step, I thought. And it's still in existence because it's been extended. <laughs> The other thing that we did was, early on, I realized that there was a real problem around the issue of um, the theft of DNA. At that time, you'll remember, there were a lot of scandals around, um, you know, there was, first of all, there was um, the point of uh, a blue dress involving Bill Clinton, and, uh, and everybody was very, it was very interesting, because Bill Clinton came to a G8 meeting in Birmingham, and there was a little bit I saw in the papers where he, his, his, he'd had a pint of beer to show he was one of the chaps, and, uh, and his beer glass was left on the table, and then a, a, a sort of an, a special agent lifted his glass and didn't just pay for the beer, but paid for the glass as well, and took the glass away, wrapped up, to make sure that nobody, uh, Manny, no scurrilous reporter, took the glass away and had it tested and, and you know, made use of it. So um, it was very clear that that kind of thing was going to become prevalent, that people would, um, you know, be taking the folks' cigarette butts and having DNA tests done on them, that they would be raking through your bins for your, you know... Um, 
uh, your dental floss to find out whether you had fathered um, you know, somebody's child, that kind of thing. And the tabloids, if they were prepared to hack your phone, you could be sure they were going to be prepared to go to great lengths to, to get this kind of stuff. So um, um, we brought in, uh, we persuaded the government to create a criminal offence yeah. of theft of DNA. Yeah. So it was, it was a very interesting time, legal issues, ethical issues, moral issues, and, uh, uh, and I think that you know, the bonfire of the quangos, were, you know, there were plenty of quangos that could be well done away with, but that was one that I thought they made a mistake in folding up because I think these issues will continue uh, to be um, on the, you know, important ones on our agenda and they'll be missed because there won't be people to keeping an eye on it. I think there's an important point here around the fact that at the moment, as, as, as things stand, and Mike, do uh, come in on this, the uh, as things stand, uh, medical genomics, the, the applications mm. that Anna was talking <coughs> about and you were, were talking about, they're very much for people who are unwell. Mm. There's something wrong with them. There's a clear benefit to them from being sequenced that, mm. that may uh, make it very obvious that they want to undergo the risk to privacy of, of being genome sequenced. But... As we move forward and, and, and roll out services that may be more about screening the well population for mm. disease risk, those, that risk calculus will, will become different. How do, how do we best police that, Mike? I mean, what, what's the best way of doing it? Well, it is, as you say, that the, the access to genetic <coughs> testing at the moment very much is around a, a medical model. Somebody has a medical problem that they need addressed, and that's when um, genetic testing is done. The numbers of individuals that are going to get genetic testing in future of one sort or another is going to increase quite dramatically. We're already beginning to see that um, women who are pregnant who have a test for Down syndrome in their child, that test is going to be converted over the next three to four years around the world into a test that is going to be sequencing DNA from the fetus that is flowing naked through the blood of the, the mother. They'll just take a blood sample from the mother and look at the fetus's DNA to see whether the fetus has drowned down. And the syndrome. big advantage of that compared to the current situation, of course, is no invasive amniocentesis that could yes, put it, pregnancy and, at risk. And, 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 of course, much earlier um, terminations yes, if too. people choose to go down that road. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the problems about all of this is that, um, I mean, there is an issue. I mean, there is a serious issue f important for debate, which is in the pursuit of perfection, um, we may end up with you know, people being tested for almost everything and yeah. choosing termination um, for the most minimal of, of, uh, of you know, uh, things being wrong well, with people. Anna, you've worked yeah. with the deaf community over this, I haven't you? I have, yes. And my, in fact, we were just talking about this very briefly over lunch. This idea that you could test um, a, a pregnant woman, you, know, you could test, in theory, for 20,000 genes. What do you actually choose to put on a list? What, you know, what should you test for? In my mind, uh, serious life-threatening conditions could be on that list. I, I feel there's you know, strong arguments for that. But there are so many conditions that are genetic that you know, they're, they're so subjective, and deafness is one of those. Um, so <coughs> I've worked for many years with the deaf community, um, uh, you know, deaf sign language using adults who basically had no problem at all with being deaf. You know, their language was their, their identity. They actually didn't mind having deaf children. Many of them had genetic deafness with generations of deafness in there. Um, and the thought of deafness being one of the genes, Connexin 26 is one of the most common deafness-causing genes, could be on that list um, for pregnant women. Now, for hearing parents who have deaf children, 
often it's a very different perspective. You know, you know, absolute horror. How will I communicate with my child? How will my child function in a hearing world? So their perspective is very different, and they may feel, okay, Connection 26, that gene should be on that list. And of course, you're talking about an issue here where, um, and, and um, Helena alluded to this earlier, that where there is actually a single gene that's mutated to cause deafness in yeah. that case. But Very actually, easy to test it, yeah. in the majority of genetic of conditions mm. that have a genetic component, diabetes, heart disease, etc., it's not like that, is it, Mike? Yeah. No, absolutely. For most diseases, such as diabetes, heart disease, it's not that there is a single mutation in a particular gene that is putting someone at elevated risk of the disease. It's often that there are multiple genes around the genome, each of which has got a mutation which only confers a tiny increased risk. And indeed, the increased risk that an individual may be of at, to develop heart disease or diabetes may go up with having these differences in their genome from something of the order of maybe, let's say, 10% to 12% or 13%. The effects are there, but many of them are very small. And for any individual, the ability to predict on the basis of these very small effects is very limited. Nevertheless, people are becoming interested in it. And the discussion that you're hearing here is interesting because we're trying to put a structure and rules around a train that has already left the station. Yeah. You know, there are people who are having their genome sequenced. Having that sort of test was the domain of a doctor in the past in response to a medical need. That's no longer the case. There are thousands, tens of thousands of people that have had their bits of, bits of their genome sequenced to 23andMe and these other companies. There are more and more individuals who are having their whole genome sequenced, and they're doing it for a variety of different reasons. Anything because they are interested somehow in looking through a set of tarot cards that they see their genome to be to predict their destiny they're looking in the wrong place if they think that's what they're going to get, to looking for genealogy, to looking for some hidden ethnic origin in the past, and others are doing it for you know, more speculative or apocryphal reasons like dating. I mean, so this is becoming part of our culture, the generation and engagement with genomes beyond the confines of the doctor's surgery. And of course, this, this raises the, 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 the very important question of actually public uh, engagement and understanding of, of, of these issues. We tend to think of genomics as a deterministic science, as having genes for this, genes for that. And it, actually, it's not mostly like that, really. It's no. probabilistic. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Of course, once you start to understand some of that, maybe the idea that your employer is going to be interested in yeah. reading your DNA to see if you're any good at maths perhaps becomes a little less worrying, would you say? Well, the problem is, you see, you, you see the concern you have about that is that, um, yes, we know that we're, we're, we're increasingly, you know, more and more of the public are realising that actually it's not like we thought, that it, like, you know, that it was you know, somehow going to give us a kind of life plan. You, you're going to pop your clogs at 75 because you will get, uh, you know, lung cancer at 70. Uh, it's, it, it, it's not like that. But um, what we were concerned about was that even in, in spending time with insurers, how readily the 
they, they were over-reading mm. some of the things right. that were contained yes. in someone's DNA. And so an employer is just as likely, you know, unless the employer is actually um, employing sensible genetic counselling folk who really know this stuff, then they too are going to over-read the meaning of certain mm. things. And if it's a choice between you and you, and you have in your gene thing a predisposition towards alcoholism, they just might choose him yeah. rather than you, mm. even although you've, mm. you've decided yeah. never to touch the demon drink. So that's one of the problems, is about the over-reading of this sure. sort of stuff. And that applies also to an extent to the medical profession as well, mm. would you mm. say, Anna? Yeah, I'd, I'd say, yeah, I'd agree with that. I, th I think one of the best predictors of, as, of whether you're at risk from something is whether there is something in your family history already. You know, if you see something passing through the generations, um, it's likely that it's inherited and it's, you know, when you go to a clinical genetics department, because you have a strong family history, say, of breast and ovarian cancer, we can actually look at specific genes and test people in the family who've had cancer and look at those genes and see if there are changes in them that are indicative of cancer in the family. And then you can do predictive testing for people who haven't had cancer yet mm. to say, have you got the family gene fault or not? And if you have, then you can put in place you know, additional screening or preventative surgery, that sort of thing. But that, of course, does raise the interesting issue that your genetic results don't just affect you. Yeah, and uh, I certainly, when I was working in clinical practice in, as a genetic counsellor, I did come across identical twins from a family history with breast and ovarian <coughs> cancer where one of the twins was absolutely wow. adamant she wanted to be tested for the BRCA1 gene. This is the gene that's been in the news recently with Angelina Jolie. Um, that's the gene that she has. And um, so one of the twins adamant she wanted to be tested, her identical twin sister adamant she didn't want to be tested, um, <laughs> and the lawyers got involved sadly and you know, threatened to sue the one who wanted to be tested to, to prevent her going ahead. Um, actually, we consulted the Nuffield Council of Bioethics, we had great big debates you know, nationally about this case and decided that the right to know outweighed the right not to know, so we tested um, it, the it, twin. That's a, such an interesting thing, is that um, many of the ethical issues come up around the fact that knowing this stuff about your, you has implications for other people. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's one of the things that kind of repeatedly came, mm. in, came before us, was that, that thing that your, your, you know, your genetic makeup is actually going to have implications for your children, um, for your sisters, mm. your, you know, and, uh, and while that can sometimes be very positive and everybody mm. wants to share that information, there are, there are also mm. those who, who don't. But I'm interested that right, the right to know trumps, yeah. the right not to know, that's very interesting. Mike, you're wanting to add something? Well, I think that to the scale of the problem that is facing us is quite great. I've talked about the differences between you and the next-door neighbour. There are three million in the genome, three million differences in sequence between you and your neighbour. We know the consequences and implications of an absolutely minuscule proportion of those three million differences. And if we think about the ones that we have been studying for... 30 years now, such as, for example, the abnormalities in the breast cancer genes, <coughs> still today, well, it's more like 20 years of study, we are <coughs> uncertain as to the precise risks that they, that, that they cause. So we have this major challenge where the technology is moving forward very quickly and is going to continue moving forward, but we are a little bit slow now at setting the rules and we do have to set some rules. And 
The fact that Helena's committee is no longer extant is one of the problems. But you heard there from Anna, a rule has been set. It's something at least to get around which we can make decisions. That the wish to know trumps the wish not to know. And we have shown many times over the last decades in many ethical contexts that we can make consensual societal rules that allow us to move forward and to use these new technologies in a reasonable manner. We need to do that yeah. now rather in an accelerated manner for genomics. What do you guys think? Questions over to you. Uh, there's one at the bottom here. Mics are on their way around. Related to eugenics, which was so frowned upon about 30 years ago or 40 years ago. Well, can I, can I, I mean, that was a constant theme for us on the Human Genetics Commission, was the business about um, um, the, pursu the pursuit of perfection. You know, that, that people, parents have a fantasy that somehow or other, they, that down the line, they might be able to have tests that will make sure that their child doesn't. And then that they might be able to make... Uh, decisions, and particularly around, and we were talking about it a little bit earlier on, around the fact that if you are having um, fertility treatment, or you choose to have uh, a fertility treatment um, because you want to screen out certain things that you know are in your family, and you want to make sure that your child is not going to have this particular thing, then you might choose to have in vitro fertilization and um, a, a thing called pre-genetic uh, diagnostic testing, where you, know, you actually look at the blastocysts and you see whether the, the, they carry the particular um, uh, uh, gene, um, which is, you know, uh, is going to carry the disease. And, and those choices, then, people start making kind of rather crazy uh, suppositions that they'll be able to choose for intelligence, that they'll be able to choose for musical ability, mu you know, all sorts of things. Um, and the, the, there's a kind of narcissist, you know, narcissism in it that is also mad. Um, but, the, but there are fears around some of that stuff. Now, people in the disability movement feel very strongly that as soon as, there, as we increase the number of tests that are available to people, and as there seems to be almost a kind of acceptance in society that there should be more and more of these tests, that the place for those with disabilities, particular kinds of disabilities, will become narrower and narrower, and that they will feel more and more unwanted and more and more rare and more and more peculiar. And they don't... They, they, so they're, they're, they, they feel very strongly that we shouldn't be going down this road. So that there is a very interesting ethical issue for society around this, about the extent of testing. But isn't there, Mike, and, and or Anna, one of you may be able to answer this, but uh, isn't there an issue here that, that actually, with some of the fears around eugenics, some of them actually are based on perhaps a misconception of how genetic a trait-like intelligence might actually be, yeah. for example. Yeah, I mean, can I just say yeah. about the reality of what actually happens in the clinical genetics department? I mean, I've worked with families with really severe life-threatening conditions that they really want to avoid in their children. Um, and many of them have had multiple pregnancies that have been affected and they've lost pregnancies and they've had children that have died. People don't embark on using this technology lightly. You know, sure. having a test in pregnancy and ending a pregnancy is not a pleasant thing to do, particularly if it's a late termination of pregnancy. So this technology is not used frivolously at all. Uh, the reality is that um, it's very sensitively <coughs> done. Um, for PGD that Helena's just mm -hmm. been talking about, you have to use IVF technologies, and actually getting pregnant through IVF in itself is heartbreaking. I mean, the daily injections, the success rate is so low. 
You then harvest uh, eggs. If they're fertilized, then you go to embryos. You may only have two embryos. Then you're testing those embryos for the genetics, and then you're making the choice. Do you keep the embryo? Do you, do you not keep it? This is a very long difficult process for individuals and not anything that anybody does lightly and you know the thought that you know you, we might be using NHS services to test for intelligence or it's just not reality mm. at all. Another question? Um, Claire in the middle. Brilliant session by the way, fascinating. Um, I, I, um, I wanted to ask how we, um, how we counter the kind of over-determinism question because it, it, it almost seems to me it's not that you need to know more about science, but we have to have a, a, a more sensible discussion in society about what science can and cannot tell us. Because it seems to me that we live in an era where everybody thinks science can solve all problems, and science is almost encroaching into areas where I think it should butt out, if I'm frank. Um, but, that, but, you know, that there's, in other words, science has to be kind of both more modest... Um, or we have to have a more modest understanding of it whilst understanding it's incredibly important, you know, uh, what it can do for society. Because some of the, the stuff on determinism and, and so on is almost a cultural question. You know, people seeing that, you know, they are fated one way or another. And you hear politicians do it all the time. I mean, there's quite a kind of glib sense of genetic predisposition or those mm. kind of things are discussed as though people know what the science is. Mm. But also, culturally, we seem to have become quite fatalistic that... Even if, and I think Elena made the point, I mean, even if you've got the gene for alcoholism, there's such a thing as free will. And the free will can say, I might have the gene, but I'm ignoring it. I mean, you don't have to go down your gene path. Yeah. So that's a more political, cultural question. Now, Mike, there's a particular issue, I think, with communicating that very good point that Claire's made around with the Genomics England programme, the programme to sequence 100,000 <coughs> genomes, the particular ways in which they're doing that for cancer and for rare disease are actually the cases that are more deterministic. Yes, absolutely. Mm. And therefore trying to communicate that correct, broader message mm. that it's not usually mm. deterministic mm. is quite difficult. What, yes, what, it is. I mean, it's quite difficult to convey what deterministic actually is. And those two contexts, as, uh, as uh, Mark was just saying, of rare diseases and cancer, that's a very good, those are very good places to start because it is quite deterministic. You can, you know predict outcomes quite well on the basis of mutations. What most mutations, well, actually all mutations do, all changes do, is that they confer a probability of an, of an outcome, a probability of an event. And sometimes that probability is 100%, which is deterministic, and sometimes that probability is 5%. And sometimes that probability is not much more than what somebody else in the population who does not have that mutation has. And we're very bad all of us, actually, it's almost like innate in hum being human at understanding in a deep way risk. Risk is a very difficult thing to take on board and to process in our minds. But actually, what genomics is bringing us is that much of the population, if, we, if it is going to engage in understanding its genome, is going to have to understand risk at a higher level than it does now. And we have some examples because from clinical genetics, this is exactly the the struggle that they've been engaged in over the last 30 years since they started genetic mm. testing. Mm. How do you convey to a patient in your clinic the concept of risk, 
risk of breast cancer. Mm. Is that right? Absolutely. And what's been fascinating to me working in clinic is that you can give the science and you can say, okay, I'm, you know, I'm really sorry, but you do have the breast cancer gene and you know, your lifetime risk is, is massively increased. And they actually don't believe you because they've got their own lay beliefs and lay understandings about what that means for them. And I've heard very frequently, actually, patients saying things like, oh, well, my mum had ginger hair. I've got ginger hair. She had a fiery character. I've got a fiery character. She doesn't have the gene in the family, therefore I don't have it. So you can explain the science and actually it doesn't fit with their lay beliefs and, and that's where the role of the genetic counsellor comes in, is trying to sort of navigate the way through that. Does that also go to something that, that um, Helena was talking about earlier, the, uh, the importance of having access to people who can mediate this information for you. I mean, I'm not a believer in saying that, that, that we should tell people they can only have this information under, mm. under medical supervision, but mm. surely the, the structures need to be there and maybe the education. I mean, maybe people need to be taught about genomics in this way in school. I mean, what do you think? I mean, I always just felt that on the, in relation to the business of accessing, you're not going to be able to stop people no. buying their, their, their genome you know, for $1,000 on the internet. But what you really just want to flag up for people is don't just you know, uh, read this yourself. Take, get, find yourself a counsellor to explain what yeah. the, me the meaning of all of this is because you could actually end up frightening the yeah. life out of yourself or actually um, persuading yourself that, that you know, all, everything's rosy. As things stand, your GP is very unlikely to mm. be that expert. The one area that, yeah. that we're, I mean, we're winding up now, but the one area that is important here, and without sounding like uh, like Margaret Atwood's uh, novels, I do think there's, there are issues around data security. And, uh, and for example, in the, the database that the police had, I was very concerned that they, what, what was always lost in this was that they take a sample from people who are arrested, the samples are kept, a, a barcode is made, and the barcode is used for comparisons for ID purposes, but the sample was still kept. And when I would ask them what the reason for keeping the sample was, and why wasn't the sample destroyed, if it's only a comparison of barcodes, um, they would say, in case somehow the computer went down and so on. And, and the answer is, you just, you know, back it up, you know. But no, I, I was concerned that the samples were being kept just in case the science developed in another way and having this mass um, uh, uh, sort of database of the samples was, was, you know, contained risks for the general public. Do you think it's important that as more of us become, have our DNA uh, sequenced for medical purposes, that actually there's legislation or some kind of regulation put in place to ensure that there's no forensic backdoor into that information. Well, I mean, I mean, look, we know, we now know from the Snowden stuff right. that, that, that there are ways in which things are going to be backdoored, come what may, whether right. you know about it or whether it's, uh, you know, consented to or regulated for or not. Um, and so, I mean, it's not surprising that, that there will be anxieties which have to be allayed about people participating um, in, in, you know, the kind of project which is so important, this health project that's being done. And we've had to really, um, um, con you know, <coughs> reassure people that they're totally anonymized and all that sort of thing. Um, I'm much more concerned about the policing ones because that's where the risks, I think, yeah. really, yeah. really lie. Um, because I think that they can easily um, then, you know, revisit the samples for purposes mm. other than, and it could be, you know, is the person a red-haired person or is the person a person who suffers from schizophrenia or whatever. Mm. I mean, we ha aren't there yet, but somewhere down the line, if that happened, if that were possible. I think we're out of time, but there is one person who's burning for a question. Now, can we fit one more in? Very quick, very, very quick. I, I was absolutely convinced 
by the argument that the right to know trumps the right not to know. But we spent this morning in the discussion of um, a political life saying that we should be going in for crowdsourcing and, and, and answering the question, how can we be sure that these ethical decisions are going to be made by the people who are going to get that right? Because we don't want the population to be making that choice, presumably, by crowdsourcing. All I, yeah, all I can say we'll... is that there are lots of people debating this. The, the Joint Committee of Medical Genetics, it, this is a very topical discussion, and um, Nuffield Council of Bioethics as well are very much engaged in debate about this. So it's on the agenda, it's being discussed. And if I might say, this is one of the reasons as well why bodies like the Wellcome Trust take funding the ethics mm -hmm. as importantly as funding the, the science. Helena, a last word from you, and then well, we will have to finish. One of the things that I feel very strongly about is I do not want to see an ethics committee set up in Britain because it will be full of priests and bishops and vicars. <laughs> and I think that we, we don't need that. Mm. You know, ethics should be about all of us. We should yeah. be all talking about what's ethical. And I'm rather worried about um, kind of uh, 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 turning it into something because that's what happened to the, the, the president of the United States has his own bioethics committee. And it's absolutely, you know, rigidly um, limited by the fact that the debate never gets very far because of, of the pro-life people on it. And so I, I think that you've got to avoid that, but you have to have a very sensible set of experts who kind of assist in developing the right kinds of, uh, um, of you know, advice to the general public. But I don't think that crowdsourcing is the way forward on this one. Helena, Mike, Anna, thank you very much. And thank you. And take, we could keep debating this for ages, but please do keep debating this and take this beyond here, beyond Alborough, and back home and keep talking. Thank you very much. Thank you. This podcast was produced by Sarah Peters for Editorial Intelligence. With thanks to Vodafone, FT Weekend, CNN, GQ, and all the partners and participants who made and make Names Not Numbers possible. Thank you for listening. <laughs>